Good morning. I wasn't sure I was going to get here on time. My hair, I couldn't get it to do what I wanted. <laughs> it looks all right, right? <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm excited to be here today. Uh, I don't know if any of you are aware, but... Uh, a week ago, Wednesday night, uh, I decided uh, to have a heart attack. <laughs> it was a little one, if there's such a thing. <laughs> it was a mild, mild one, uh, and all the tests came out fine, uh, but it led to the discovery that I have diabetes. <laughs> so it's a, a great object lesson that God provided me for today's sermon. <laughs> So, it was uh, a few months back that working with Eric to develop this year's preaching schedule, that it was suggested that for 2018, uh, I select a a book uh, or at least a passage uh, to preach through the entire year. And because, and, and that's... Standard procedure here at Veritas, you know, we're going through the book of Philippians right now, and, and expository preaching is, is SOP, standard operating procedure here. But in my case, I, I only preach six sermons a year, and those average a gap of two to three months between them. So when that was first suggested to me, I thought, well, how can I do that and, and, and do that effectively? But then as I, I prayerfully, because I was at a loss, uh, prayerfully considered uh, that suggestion, and I was scanning scripture for uh, a well to draw from, if you will, uh, I ran into an old friend of mine. His name is James. And of course, I mean the epistle of James. And as well as being one of my favorite books, I think we're allowed to have favorite books. I know I do. James is a very practical work that's particularly well-structured for an expository series of intermittently preached sermons. It differs from some of the other New Testament books, and particularly those of Paul, in that its application stands on its own rather than being built up from exhaustive theological foundations. James' letter is sermonic delivering a series of rapid-fire exhortations and imperatives. In fact, out of its 108 verses, 54, literally half of them, contain imperative verbs. You know, we tell people that the Bible's not a book of do this and don't do that. James could argue for the opposite. (laughs) James says a lot of do this and don't do that. Now, even though it doesn't set down the same sort of theological foundations that Paul does, it would be our mistake to think that doctrine is unimportant to James. Douglas Moo said that no New Testament document is more influenced by the teaching of Jesus than James. 
I consider the teaching of Jesus to be doctrine. <laughs> Clearly, James did too. It just helps us to understand that James' letter was written to correct and to rebuke fellow believers about specific problems showing up in their Christian practice. And because he knew they were already familiar with doctrinal basics, he simply saw no need to spend time unnecessarily repeating it. Rather than foundational, James' theology is more subtly woven into his practical teaching. Now, along with his theology, we'll find in James a number of themes addressed, including our perseverance in trials, warnings to the rich and encouragements to the poor, law and love, faith and works, the second advent of Christ, and the virtue of humility. But while all of these are important, James' ultimate goal for his readers, then and now, is that we understand that true biblical faith is worked out in practical, godly living. For James, talk is cheap. And as we'll see, he doesn't waste any words getting to his points. James isn't so much listening for our profession of faith as he is calling us to live out that faith. James is a truly fascinating book, and I'm looking forward to walking through it with you. But I do need to make one confession. It's going to take more than a year and more than six sermons to preach through this. So, given an inch, I'm taking a mile. And should the Lord allow, I will be preaching through James for the next few years, expecting that to take about 30 sermons. Six sermons a year, you do the math. <laughs> See you in the millennium. <laughs> All right, before I preach, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father God, we are so grateful for your building up and your sustaining of this body of believers. We thank you, Father, for the growth that we have known both wide and deep. We thank you, Father, for the love that you have given us for Christ, the gospel, and your word. Father, we ask you today to bless us as we dive into the book of James would you help us to receive practical application from his practical teachings that we would be edified and that you would ultimately be glorified? In the name of Jesus, amen. is new. <laughs> Got more things to set stuff on around here now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let me read again before I begin preaching the fullness of our text. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. The first thing we see is the author's self-identification as James. That's handy. Except that there are four men identified as James in the Bible. The first is the Apostle James, son of Zebedee, the brother of the Apostle John. The second is another Apostle named James, this one the son of Alphaeus. Then there's James, the father of the Apostle Jude. And lastly, there's James, the half-brother of Jesus. We're told that he's the half-brother in Matthew 13, 55. Now, I am persuaded with the majority that it's James, the half-brother of Jesus, who authored this letter. And it's interesting that as John 7, 5 tells us, this man, who would eventually be known as James the Just or James the Righteous, began just like you and I did, an unbeliever. And even as we're told in Mark 3, 21, he actually thought Jesus to be out of his mind. That doesn't bode well for James's future. <laughs> but 1 Corinthians 15, 7 changes things when it explains that it was after the resurrection, when the risen Jesus appeared to him, that James came to faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And once he believed, his life was changed dramatically. Following Christ's ascension, James would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was also the chairman for the council of Jerusalem. You remember that Paul and Peter and other Jews were having a dispute over whether Christian Jews were still required to follow the Mosaic Act of, or the Mosaic Law of circumcision. So they sent to the council of Jerusalem, where James was head, for clarification. Ultimately, James issued the decree that Christian Jews... Christians were not required to follow Mosaic law. We're under the new covenant. But James was also reputed to have knees as hard as a camel due to his habit of long, frequent intercessory prayers. Intercessory prayer was a firm discipline for James. That's the purpose behind this letter intercession. So with such impressive credentials, James could have opened his letter citing not only that reputation, not only his authority within the church, but also his familial heritage. Hi, James, brother of Jesus, you know, God. <laughs> 
But instead, James practices what he preaches to us throughout this epistle. That the natural and proper response to God's grace is humility. And in that wisdom, James presents himself as a doulos of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ESV and the majority of translations actually translate doulos as servant. But according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, doulos can only mean one thing. It can only mean slave meaning someone who is the literal and absolute property of their master. Now, because I've preached on this in the past, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it today other than to reiterate the important distinction that in using the word doulos, James is not calling himself a hired hand. He doesn't get to go home and do his own thing at the end of the day. He's telling us that he is a man who is fully owned, body, mind, and soul, having no rights of his own, whose life is lived in obedient service to his master's will and solely for his master's fame and glory. To that, I'll only add that I believe a primary reason for our preferring servant or bond servant, as some translations list it, over slave is because we, if we're to confess ourselves as slaves of the Lord Jesus, must also confess our failed obedience to him. It's much easier to consider myself a servant than a slave. None of us, speaking first of myself, is living the life of absolute obedience to Christ that he, as God, our creator, is rightly due. We might as well admit that right now because that's a truth that's going to confront us regularly in our journey through James. So that said, moving on, notice that he identifies himself as slave to both God and Jesus. In saying that, James is declaring their divine equality. We see that echoed in his adding the title Lord before Jesus Christ. Lord was an Old Testament title given to God, and James here, applying it to Jesus, is affirming his deity. And along with identifying himself as author and his, as his role in Christ, James also identifies his original audience, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, these consisted of various groups, most of whom were Christian Jews that had, after the stoning of Stephen, fled the persecution of both Rome and traditionalist Jews to live in, as refugees in Judea and Samaria and parts of the Mediterranean. But sadly, even after abandoning their homes and their homelands, they found and suffered still more persecution where they'd settled. 
Certainly James and all the believers in Jerusalem would have been aware of those difficulties and concerned for their brothers and sisters in Christ. But James, James was a pastor. And because he's a pastor, he has a pastor's heart. And for James, there was another matter of even greater importance. James had received news that there were other afflictions, more dangerous afflictions that were coming from within the body. With some in those churches falling prey to an odd form of religion that paid lip service to orthodox beliefs, but actually practiced selfish and ungodly lifestyles. We come across those in, later in the first chapter of James, in verses 22 through 27, and again in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. But for now, it's our interest to know that it's likely that among those being deceived by such teachings were some who had at one time even been members of the Jerusalem church where James pastored. But now, far removed from its good influence, they'd become susceptible to false teachings. And that danger still exists. When we're separated from our church, whether it's through extended absence or just our sporadic attendance, we distance ourselves not just from fellowship, which Hebrews 10.25 warns us against, not to forsake the gathering together of the assembly, but we also separate ourselves from biblical moorings and gospel-grounded truth. And it's in that condition of isolation from the body of Christ that discontent is cultivated and we grow vulnerable to aberrant teachings. That's why covenantal membership here at Veritas includes your commitment to faithful attendance. That's why your Veritas elders relentlessly pursue those members we see whose member or attendance is lapsing. Biblical warnings like this remind us just how easy it is for our hearts and minds, separate and away from the church, to be influenced by devilish teachings. So knowing the troubles and dangers, both outward and inward, facing the scattered churches, what great encouragement does Pastor James offer them? We read it in verse 2, but it's not what we'd expect. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Have you seen those direct TV commercials where they first offer statistics of how most people prefer direct TV over cable, but then go on to say, but some people still like cable, just like they like banging their heads into doors, just like they like sitting in gum, just like they like spilling hot coffee on themselves. And all the while, as these things are happening, they're laughing hysterically. 
Fortunately for us, that's not the sort of ridiculous response to trials that James is commanding of us. He isn't sending us some New Testament spin on, don't worry, be happy. James isn't saying we're to enjoy trials. We don't. Neither is he saying that trials are a joy. They're not. The first recipients of this letter certainly weren't enjoying the persecutions inflicted upon them. Neither has my family been enjoying the trials afflicting us. And I'm going to take the guess that if your families are enduring trials, you're not enjoying them either. But while our specific trials may be different, our initial reactions are typically the same emotional response of helplessness, anxiety, anger, fear, and frustration. Now listen, there's nothing unusual or sinful about experiencing such emotions when facing trials, especially severe trials. We're not machines. We're humans created in the image of a loving, caring, compassionate God who himself, in his moment of sadness, openly wept. When confronted by difficult trials, an emotional response is natural and maybe even inevitable. Hebrews 12.11 begins that, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. God gives us the okay to no pain. But consider this, once we've had a chance to breathe, and our emotions have settled a bit, we can, as believers, take control of our thinking. And we can face our trials with a biblical perspective. With today's text, James draws us a map, taking us from theory to a practical living out of our faith in the midst of even the most unwelcome miseries. The Greek word the ESV translates as count means to consider something based on a weighing and comparing of available facts. Here a decision is made to weigh and compare existing and provable truths against unreliable and shifting emotions. A reasonable choice is made to place our trust in the objective over the subjective. So when he says, count it all joy, James is saying our answer to the crushing weight of trials and our answer to the initial feelings of despair and defeat begins with our making an intentional decision to think differently in which we adopt a radically counterculture, intuitive attitude to our trials. And so, in keeping with the practical teaching of James, let me offer you 
four truths that I hope will help you adopt this radical attitude towards the trials you encounter. I'll list them out for you first, and then I'll go over them in detail. Number one, this radical attitude expects trials to come and is not caught off guard by them. Number two, having this radical attitude doesn't mean that we deny our emotional pain. Three, this radical attitude does not come naturally. And four, this radical attitude begins with a conscious and deliberate decision. I'll go through them again very quickly. Number one, the, this radical attitude expects trials to come and is not caught off guard by them. Two, having this radical attitude doesn't mean that we deny our emotional pain. Three, this radical attitude does not come naturally. And four, this radical attitude begins with a conscious and deliberate decision. Beginning with number one. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice that he says, when you meet trials, not if. Trials aren't optional. No one living in this temporal world will avoid numerous encounters with troubles and trials. Our experiences with trials are one of the required courses in God's school of faith. 1 Peter 4.12 Repeats this truth. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Trials aren't strange. They're to be expected. Now some false teachings say if you'll just have enough faith, if you can just foster enough Faith, trials will never be a part of your life. A lot of dead guys have said that too. <laughs> but then when trials do come, and James promises they will, that artificial sense of faith is rocked. Often leading to being angry with God for breaking a promise that he never made in the first place. What the Word of God does promise is that we'll endure various trials. And as our text says, we'll encounter many various trials. Surely if we listed out the troubles that each of this body these families, these individuals are dealing with today, we'd have a, a very lengthy catalog of various kinds of trials. 
On that list would be spiritual trials, physical trials, relational trials, emotional trials, financial trials. The list just keeps on going. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> yeah, you do. And you know the trouble you've seen too. And perhaps you're seeing it today. And as we'll see clearly in verse 3, while each of our trials may be very different, they're same in this way. God uses each of them in accord with His sovereign and perfect will to test and mature our faith. While we may not understand why a particular trial has come to us, we know that trials will come, and we know this, that whatever they are, whatever form they come in, however long they last, they are a gift from God for our good. Now that's a radical attitude. But number two says... But our having this radical attitude doesn't mean that we deny our emotional pain. I mentioned earlier that a natural response to painful circumstance of trials is intention, excuse me, initially emotional, and that such responses are natural. But so I don't leave you thinking that's just my opinion. Let me offer some biblical support for that conclusion. John eleven thirty three through 35 tells us that following the death of Lazarus, rather than condemning his sister and the, the other Jews that were there mourning over his death, Jesus wept too. Romans 12, 15. There Paul says to rejoice with those who rejoice, Weep with those who weep. Now, in America, we have softened, I guess, if you will, the, the meaning of the word weep. I think of weeping as, as soft crying. A mother sends her daughter away to college. Weep, weep, weep. Son comes home with a dent in dad's car. Yeah. <laughs> After the shouting, weep, weep, weep. <laughs> After the bloodshed, maybe. <laughs> but the Greek word used here is klio. And klio is what you witness when you see the, the news footage of a, of a bombing somewhere. And you see a mother weeping over her dead son. It is a loud, grievous moaning and wailing. Not weep, weep, weep. It is anguish. That's what we see in Jesus. That's what Paul tells us to do. To affirm that, we turn to Hebrews 5, 7. 
And as the time approached when he would suffer the cross, the Savior offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. Our God. In his time as man preparing for the redemption of our sins, for the sacrifice of his flesh to reconcile us to himself, offered up loud cries and tears. Do you suppose he would admonish you for emotional pain and suffering as well? I don't think so. That would be hypocrisy. And we do not serve a hypocritical God. So James isn't telling us to deny our pain, to put on plastic smiles and pretend like we're not hurting. That would be nonsense. Third, this radical attitude does not come naturally. One of the truths evident throughout Scripture is that Christians are to see their circumstance and live their lives in a way that is radically different from the world. We have biblical testimony to that in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where everything said there, the conditions described there, are applied to a reaction that is quite contrary to what we'd expect. Blessed are the persecuted? What? How do you figure? I've I've never really suffered persecution. But I'm certainly not looking forward to being blessed by it. But the reality is, is that Christians are called to think, speak, act, and relate to others differently. First Thessalonians 4.3 tells us that even in trials as painfully sorrowful as death, in our being radically different from the world, we need not even grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, we've already said we're we're permitted to grieve. Here's the difference. In the midst of our grieving, we have something the world doesn't have. We have someone the world doesn't have. And that makes our grieving very different because our grieving in the midst of our weeping in the midst of our broken heart in the midst of our loss in the midst of our pain has hope in Christ but more than just distinguish us from the world Our reaction to trials should also testify to an unnatural, supernatural, 
peace that is beyond the world's understanding. In the midst of our tears and our sorrow, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, the world should see in us and through us our calm security, an expression of confidence in God's sovereignty over every and all circumstance. Psalm 35 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Our joy is in the morning star. The Christian's ability to count it all joy when meeting trials of various kinds isn't based on the powerless work of positive thinking or even some half-full sort of optimism. Our ability to count it all joy is founded in an abiding faith in God and His sure promises. Fourth, this radical attitude begins with a conscious and deliberate decision. Two people with differing world views are going to often see things in a very different way. For example, a believer in God with a worldview that says we were created according to God's will and purpose and for His pleasure will have a very different view of abortion than someone who believes we evolved out of some muck. For the evolutionist, life is unimportant other than their own. But life is just a thing that happened. It has no function. It has no purpose. There's no end game to it. We are here, we're not here, poof, done. A creationist, on the other hand, sees our every moment of life as an opportunity to serve and love and bring glory and honor to God. Our lives are about sharing Christ. Our lives are about loving others. Our lives have function and purpose and meaning, and so does the life of the unborn infant. We have a very different worldview. It's our Christian worldview that should dictate our response to the various trials we'll encounter too. It's our worldview that gives us an answer to the question, will I trust in the power of God and His promises or the power of my present circumstance? We're going to see one or the other as bigger than that. We're going to see one or the other as the dominant factor. Will it be the trial or will it be the God? 
It's an easy thing to say that we trust God when everything's going well and life is good. If you walked in this morning and you just won a $500 million lottery, I'm thinking you'd be going, I trust God. But what if everything you had was just taken from you? What if you're living out a Job experience? What doesn't come so easy is living out faith in the midst of those kind of trials, tragedies, and persecutions. But you see, it's there. It's there in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's there in the lion's den with Daniel. And it's there chained to a guard in prison with Paul. That our faith, that our faith is shown to be genuine. Not just to ourselves, but to the world. As we choose to trust God and His promises through His Word. And whether God brings us through our trial in this lifetime, or should they endure right to the doorstep of eternity, our decision to trust God and experience His joy and His hope in the midst of such trials is a radical attitude that James commands us to adopt. But we've got to ask, why? Why would you give us such a command, James? There must be a reason, right? We find the answer to that question in verse 3. And that reads, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If you have a different version of the Bible, it may say endurance. But here, James is saying that there's something we know, or at least should know. And this is it. That God uses the various trials we experience to test our faith. Now listen, James isn't saying that God is using trials to test the existence of of our faith, that's not necessary because God knows the gifts He's given you. And if you have faith, it's a gift He's given you. Rather, in describing this testing of our faith, James uses language conveying the idea of our trials being used to prove and purify our faith. Revelation 3.18 uses the same language to describe gold being refined by fire. The Septuagint, that's the, the Greek version, the Greek language, Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It uses it too. In Proverbs 27, 21, where it says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. In this sense, 
Our testing is compared to a refining of metal in which both processes improve the final product. Now, I know not all of you enjoy mixed martial arts or other combat sports, but I do. My wife doesn't. Oh, the blood. <laughs> yeah, the blood. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> I do. I, I, I don't play baseball. I never did. I didn't play soccer. I didn't, I didn't get to hit anybody. <laughs> I like football. <laughs> I like boxing. I like MMA. And one of the things I, I hear said of fighters, particularly the, the younger ones, the newer ones to the game, is, is how much they've improved after each fight they've had. You see, with each new opponent, they gain new tactics, they get a little tougher, they get more resilient, and, and they grow in their defensive skills too. And that's the same thing that our trials do for us. And it's what James means when he says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Romans 5.3, Paul says, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. He validates what James just said. He compliments what James just said. Our testing produces endurance. And when we endure trials by faith, that faith is strengthened, made more resilient, and is better equipped to deal with the next round of trials. As well, our enduring trials by faith with joy brings God great glory. As well, our knowledge that trials aren't just a sad commodity of life where God is left helplessly wringing His hands in despair over our dire situation, but is instead a fulfilling of God's sovereign plan, having a very real and valuable purpose. Understanding that gives us a view of trials that the world just can't know or understand. Like James, they may think you're out of your mind. We're just out of this world. Our every trial, and particularly those that are bring us great pain, is an opportunity to both demonstrate our faith and to grow in it. Knowing that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's in Romans 8.28. Final verse is verse 4 where it reads, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.
Although the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, steadfastness shouldn't be considered the end game. Rather, our increase in patient endurance should encourage us to even greater spiritual growth and an ever-increasing maturity in our faith. But just as we can know that a fighter doesn't perfect his skills with just one fight, we also know that even if we endure it well, through faith and with joy, we won't be made perfect and complete through the testing of just one trial. Wouldn't that be nice? But just as it is with our physical and our emotional maturity, the same is true with our spiritual maturity. It's a process. Trials are the means to that process. Trials are the tool that God uses to nurture and build and strengthen our faith. In saying, let steadfastness have its full effect, James is telling us, hey, this isn't some kind of quick fix. Even the word perfect isn't implying that any of us will reach a point, at least not in this life, where we've arrived. Can't go any further? Got it going on. Me and you, Lord, set up another throne because I'm perfect. That's not what he means. We still after every trial, no matter how well we've endured it, need more progress, need more growth, lack maturity to be all that God would have us to be. I know that in recent trials of various kinds in my own home, uh, the physical trials, financial trials, practical trials, and relational trials, all of which have, of course, had an ultimate spiritual impact, I discovered something. I was failing miserably at lessons I thought I'd already learned. So here I am, even as I preach this very sermon, taking God's course in trusting Him in trials all over again. The reality is this. Not one of us graduates until we go to heaven. I think I'm sitting at the back of the class, but maybe with one of those dunce caps. But look, my, my spiritual disabilities don't hinder God's purpose in those trials. It was and is that through my enduring them, I'll hopefully score better on the next round of tests than I did on this one. That I may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He has the same purpose for you, too. That you would endure the testing of your faith through trials, using it to grow and mature your faith. And that's all a very good thing. That's all a very God thing. 
So our goal in desiring to grow in spiritual maturity is that we'll be more equipped to serve God and demonstrate His work in us, displaying the fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, before a lost and dying world that desperately needs to see that radical difference in our lives. Whether they know it or not. James ends verse 4 with the words lacking in nothing. This speaks to the fullness, the completeness that God's Spirit builds in us brick by brick, trial by trial. It bears repeating that our spiritual character, the image we bear of God, will not be made perfect in this life. However, there is in a very real and comforting sense a truth that we are, even now, even here today, lacking in nothing because our fullness and our victory over every trial is found in the one who as second peter 1 3 says has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness romans 8 31 through 39 says this what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tell that to your trials. Pray that when you're in trials. In conclusion, we know joy not because we have trials, but because we have Jesus. And because we have Jesus, we can and should know joy in spite of our trials. Acts 5 tells us how such rejoicing in the pain or in the face of painful trials is lived out. And verses 
40 through 41, the apostles, after having just been freed from, by an angel of God from prison and resuming their preaching of Christ crucified, are again brought before the Sanhedrin. This time they're beaten and again charged not to speak in the name of Jesus before being released. <laughs> but just as fast as they're away from the presence of the council, they're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Is that our radical attitude toward trials? James says it should be. In review, James' instruction for our dealing with trials is to adopt and embrace a radical attitude, considering it all joy, because we have the comforting knowledge that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, which, as God works to refine that faith, will have its perfect effect, that we may be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing through Christ. That's the only way genuine faith responds, with practical godliness under the testing of trials. Every believer's prayer should include our petition that God would strengthen our persevering faith, that we might endure trials well, so that in our sufferings, He would be glorified before the eyes of the world. But now, before I offer a closing prayer, I need to go back a bit and revisit verse 2. And specifically two words that weren't earlier addressed in the exposition of our text. My brothers. It's important for us to see that this letter from James was written to and for Christians. Now here's the truth for believers and unbelievers alike. Our most nightmarish trials are less than spit in the ocean when compared to Revelation 21's promises of eternity. The believer's promise is an everlasting paradise in the presence of God where there He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. No more trials in heaven. Just glory and good and God's loving presence. Not about you, but I'm looking forward to that. But the scriptures promising that promise a very different eternity awaiting the defiant unbeliever. With the Endless suffering there far more terrible than anything our mortal minds might now conceive. In that for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. For them, there's nothing to face forward except suffering torture. 
There are no pleasant trials. But as we heard from James today, for those in Christ, even as we endure harshest circumstance and the deepest agonies, there is reason for joy and hope in the purpose and promises of God. But unbeliever, hear me today. There is no such promise for you. And without that promise, you have no rationale for hope or joy. So listen, before leaving today, if you're here and you don't know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, I invite you in all sincerity and I plead with you even to find me after service, find one of our other pastors. We've got three, Eric and Greg and Jeff. Or just find someone that's still smiling after a sermon like this. <laughs> because we'd like to talk to you. Because we know someone we'd like you to know too. And we love talking about him and we love talking about the grace of his gospel and what it's done in our lives and what he promises it'll do in yours too. Would you bow your heads with me please as we close today in prayer? Glorious God, we thank you. Such a peculiar thing to say, Lord. We thank you joyfully for the trials that you bring our way, knowing that for those who love you, for those who are called according to your purpose, they are each and all worked together for our good. Lord, help us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our distress, to have the cognizant awareness to remember that you still reign that you are still on your throne in heaven and that your promises are still being kept. Father, would you strengthen our faith? Would you grow us in perseverance? Would you help us to see the joy in even the most dire of circumstances? Not the joy of the circumstance, but the joy in our King. Jesus, would you bless us today with your presence as we leave this place. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.